this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Coming to the end of this rebranding safety, safety one, safety two mini series. We are three interviews to go, so that's two, four, six episodes to go in this mini series. Let's jump into the intro, and I'll tell you more about today's guest. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. Rebound and Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety. So if you're new here, hit all those buttons, subscribe, follow, whatever it is. Just hit it. So we're coming to the end of this mammoth mini-series. It shouldn't really be called a mini-series. It should be called a mammoth series because uh, it's absolutely huge. And if you are anything like me, have your attention span of a gnat, you kind of had enough of Safety 1 and Safety 2. Um, and the last three episodes are a mixed bag. So today's episode, I'll tell you more about it in a minute, um, but today's episode and uh, next week's episode, and, and partially the last episode as well, were kind of made without the full intention of them being in this mini-series, but actually they seem to work really well. Um, less so maybe this episode you listen to today because uh, there was an overarching tone in our pre-conversations where we were unsure what we wanted to talk about. And we like, oh, actually, I think this would sit really well in this mini-series. Um, the next week's episode, um, this, the lady works heavily in this kind of safety to hop space and, you know, uh, we, we we didn't really plan anything, we just pressed record and we're like, let's talk about something. And we ended up talking quite a lot about Safety 2 uh, and, and that they did experience within it. So it was it was interesting. So I thought, yeah, let's whack that on the end of this as well. Um, instead of bringing back uh, Tim Marsh, we were originally going to re-broadcast Tim Marsh and Ron Gant's episode, but we thought, leave them where they are. Um, and we'll make more work for ourselves by two brand new episodes. Great idea, James. Um, so yeah, and then the last episode um, is is kind of yeah, it's a mixed bag, and it's more talking about the the profession or the professional um, based off some research this gentleman did. So today's episode, like I say, third till the end when it comes to the interviews. Today's guest uh, dropped me a message on LinkedIn that then led to a phone call, which then led to a podcast. Because it's kind of how this stuff works. You, you want to be a guest, you could quite easily drop me a message on LinkedIn, and it leads to a phone call, and leads to a podcast. So if you've got something you want to talk about, you've got something you need to get off your chest, Rebounded Safety is the place. It's the place to do it. But this gentleman had a really interesting outlook on safety, a more kind of, and I really struggle to say this word, a philosophical view, to, to be specific. He, he looks at things with, a, so basically he's done some, he's got an educational background, he's got like a really, you know, interesting military and work-based background, but then when he's, from his educational point of view, he's done psychology and then philosophy, and, and kind of thought maybe a more 
philosophical view is something that maybe we're lacking. Um, and we got to talking about safety one and safety two, and he had some really valid and strong opinions. And, and actually not heavily involved in this safety two space, just has his very unique opinion and, and thinks this is what we need and, and we need more of these philosophical views and some more kind of um, morals and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, what's that thing you called the oaths and things like that, you know, that we can all have, you know, like that, uh, the doctor's oath, can't remember what it's called, Hippocratic oath, they all have that one thing, you know, this is what we do, this is what we stand by. Um, does safety have that? Do we need that? So we were kind of talking about that, and we were talking about safety one, safety two, and, and, and it fits really nicely in this from a, from a point of view of, of really not talking about safety two, but talking about a different way to think, or maybe uh, an upgraded way to think, an added tool to your toolbox, so to speak. So I thought, it's going in the one and two series. Um, I really liked his way of talking. The guy's pretty cool, laid back as well which is exactly what we love here. Um, so like I say, degrees in psychology, uh, philosophy, uh, background in the fire service, and now is a director of OUCH Training. Hashtag great name for health and safety training company. Um, and like I say, has a very interesting perspective uh, to bring us up to the tail end of our Safety 1 Safety 2 mini-series. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Simon Casson. No, I, I think you're right on that on that piece, especially around the diversity piece. And I think it's interesting to use a manual handling example because when I used to deliver training, for a while, I haven't done it for a while now, but um, I used to do manual handling training all the time. And I always used to start with a video of a young um, Indian boy uh, who's been given bricks off of this boat and he's chucking them up and, and he's catching them on his head, like literally, like puts them there, puts them next to him. And then this thing is so tall that he has to throw these bricks up and he catches them on his head. And I always say like, is this good or bad manual handling? And everybody would always go quiet. And then they would go, well, obviously it's bad. And I was like, why is it bad? Yeah. And no one really, well, you know, you're supposed to bend your knees and you're supposed to do this. And I thought, well, think about what we're trying to do when we're telling you to bend your knees. What we're trying to do and we're like, well, you know, look after her back. Yeah, but how? What are we trying to do? When you finally get to the point where you say, we're trying to keep the natural curvature of your back, yeah? So that's what that's our aim here, is to keep your back in its strongest position. Yeah. Yeah, do we all agree? Yeah, we all agree. Okay, let's watch the video again. And this young boy has the best posture that you've probably seen, you've, you've probably never seen in England, because we're all terrible at posture. But he's... Yeah up straight his back is in a good strong position his head is perfectly in you know you could just see if you could x-ray him in that moment you could see this beautiful spine all the way down in exactly where it needs to be but because it's not how we traditionally lift things and how we carry things because it's different we're like well it must be wrong we kind of we kind of judge those societies by saying oh you do things strange compared to us, therefore it's wrong. And, and like I said to you earlier, I used to do uh, a Chinese martial art and I always use an example from that in ergonomics and in, in not, not to get in the Chinese versus Japanese martial arts debate, but there, there is a very prominent Japanese martial art that we all talk about. Um, well, they teach a very traditional block where your kind of arm is at like a right angle uh, and that's your block, you know, quite traditional, everyone knows it. Uh, and the Chinese martial art that I used to do, they turn, they would take that 
and you turn your hand so your out your forearm just comes forward a little bit and you turn your palm to face outwards so the inside of your hand is facing the the enemy so to speak it automatically makes your arm stronger not right. stronger but structurally stronger yeah. and that we used to do this exercise you i could get say yourself someone who's a similar a similar build and you could do the traditional one and get somebody to lean on your arm and your arm will give way like full on just lean body weight onto your arm and your arm will give way now you turn your arm into the ergonomic way of doing it where you're engaged your muscles yeah and it will hold them off it will you'll stand there and you'll hold it, it, it when i first saw it it blew my fucking mind and I was just like, what the shit? And, and I, just, <laughs> I remember my tutor just saying, and I was like, how is that even possible? And he went, James, there's things that the Asian communities have nailed from an ergonomic point of view that we haven't even touched yet from yeah. a science point of view. There's things that they know. They don't need research and, and uh, you know tests and all this to tell them. They just know it works. And you look at some of the oldest practices in the world and you just see pure ergonomics in some of the oldest practices in the world. And I just think just because, and to your point on diversity, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. That's right. I agree completely. And, and, and also, we, we lose the opportunity if we don't, um, if we don't design design work that includes, like you say, people from different ages, cultures, backgrounds. We understand that, um, but we lose that opportunity. But what also we do as well is, is because we objectify people, we measure our relationships with other humans in relationship, uh, in relation to their output. Mm. So an example, uh, a worker is a good worker who delivers the tasks that I've asked them to do. Yeah. yeah? Um, I have a good partner if she delivers what I think a good partner should be. Yeah. Now, let's imagine if we turn it around and we say, instead of measuring them against what we think they should deliver, let's turn it around and let's say, okay, what can you deliver? And what, or what do you feel that you're capable of doing? Mm. Now, what help do you need to do that? Now, if we if we don't object, so the first way is objectifying. Okay, safety one objectifies humans. Safety two uh, doesn't objectify humans. Mm. It creates an opportunity, and it doesn't mean it does it all the time, but it creates an opportunity to recognise what can you do, not what I want you to do. Because what you find is when you when you start having that conversation, what can you do? You will end up with more and you will end up with more real expectations. In the same way, there's no point having a piece of machinery and wanting it to make a thousand widgets a day, but actually it can only do 750 because all I do is just get angry. Yeah. You know, I think I think before we go to safety one and safety two, we need to go back further. We all need to go back further. And um, it was a while ago now, it was 2016. I did five lectures on, um, on, on, on actually the human animal in, in relation to safety. Right, yeah. what, what, why don't we look at what humans are good at and design work based on that? Mm. But we don't do that. 
We go, this is what I want you to achieve. If you don't achieve it, you're a bad human. Yeah. Why do we believe that the human brain can withstand and, and, and hold enormous amounts of technical information when it's overly tired, when it's hungry, when it's thirsty, when it's sad, when it's stressed, when it's anxious? Why would we believe that that could happen? Because <laughs> humans can't do that. So why do we think that we should ask them to? Do you not think it's, uh, I've used this example before and I was talking to a gentleman called Ron Gant, but um, isn't it ironic that like, and it kind of to what you've just said, I find it so ironic that we spend millions and millions of pounds creating these phenomenal intelligent machines. Like we're trying to create AI robots, you know, a robot that can think for itself. And what will we do with that robot? We will inevitably look after it because we spent millions of pounds on it, right? And we're trying to create a robot that can think for itself, you know, Google, Alexa, and all those things. They can think for themselves. They can make decisions. But isn't it ironic that when we bring a human that is biologically already designed to think for itself into the workplace, we make sure that they, they don't think for themselves and we don't look after them. And we kind of mold them into a clone. So we say, oh, well, Simon, we want to bring you in because we think you can be quite innovative. And then we bring you in and then we say, oh, Simon, what are you doing? That's a bit different. And so, well, you wanted me to innovate. No, no, we want you to work to this procedure, please, and innovate within this procedure. And we kind of create stupid, don't we? But yet science is like, how, how can we create something that thinks for itself? And I'm like, we've got millions of them. They're called fucking humans. And they yeah. live on Earth. Try just looking at what you've already got instead of trying to create something that is us. I, I've never, um, I, I've never um, carried out any research which would be um, uh, accepted by um, uh, psychological journals or universities, or whatever. But, but for about just about two and a half years, um, I, I do quite a lot of leadership, at least sort of leading safely and all that lot, and. Um, uh, what I did is I measured the critical thinking skills. I used um, uh, a pro forma, a standard pro forma of measuring critical thinking skills of all the people who were on the courses. And we found that the research, and this wasn't my criteria, um, it, we, we found that I think it was less than one out of every 15 of the people who were leaders in decision-making positions had the basic level of critical thinking skills required. Less than 15, because we don't teach people how to do it. We, we don't teach them how to think philosophically. We don't teach them how to understand cause and effect. We, we are obsessed with correlation and effect. Now, Willie, um, David Hume, and um, it, 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 it sometimes known as a Scottish philosopher, created um, and a great problem called, um, it's called Hume's dilemma or Hume's problem. And the thing is, what we do is we confuse deductive reasoning, two and two equals four. Yeah, that's deductive. We, 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 we don't need to have ever seen a triangle to know that a triangle has three sides because the definition of a triangle is it has three sides. So that's deductive. They're examples of deductive. But when we do our everyday um, risk assessments, for example, um, what we do is we go, if I put these control measures in place, they will result in these, um, these actions. 
that's inductive reasoning. And we believe because we've said it, it will be. Why would we do that? Yeah. Because it's completely and utterly illogical mm. and irrational. But we do it because that's the paradigm that we use. Mm. That's the paradigm. So uh, I, I've said, I've, I wrote something called a possible and preferable tool. And I've, I've analysed about 150 change programmes over the last seven years. Um, and I've looked at them and I've gone, yeah, that looks, yeah, I like that one. Mm, I'm not sure about that. That's just theoretical. That's practical. And the best one that I've found is, is one called Combi. Have you ever heard of Combi? No. That's, the, in my opinion, that's the, the one that's closest to something that we could actually use. C-O-N or C-O-N? Uh, C, Charlie, O, Oscar, M, Mike, B. B for Bravo. <clears throat> Capability, opportunity, motivation. Okay. Now, the, but there is a problem with it. And the problem with it is it's quite, in my opinion, it's quite technically difficult to understand it. I've been to lectures um, um, of people who designed the, the system. The new scientists have, have, uh, have had some, um, uh, what do they call them, instant expert lectures. And I've been to them and I've read God knows how many books. I like it, but... Um, it, I don't think it's usable for people in an everyday everyday uh, way. So what I've designed is something called the possible and preferable tool. And whatever it is, anything to do with behaviour, ask yourself quite simply, is it possible that somebody can carry out the behaviour? Is it possible they can't carry out the behaviour? Or they won't carry out the behaviour? And the next one is, is it preferable for them to choose that behavior? Or is it preferable for them to choose a different behavior? Now, if you ask yourself those questions, and that there's a bit more to it than that, I mean, it's not massively complicated, but then what you do is you then start to see whether, whether your um, inductive reasoning is based on relevant evidence or whether it's just Mm, yeah, I think it'll be all right. Or whether we even comprehend that people may not do it. Mm. So we're, we're, our starting point with even our basic paradigm, risk assessment, is flawed. Mm. It's just, it is, it's flawed. If you, if you use a scientific method of inquiry and, and, and says, yeah, we're going to do it like this, uh, they, they just laugh at you. They go, really? That don't make any sense. Why, why do you believe that that will happen? Well, because. Why do you believe that if I train somebody in manual handling, they will be safer at manual handling? Why do you believe that? Well, that's what we do. Mm. There is a, 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 honestly, a really um, uh, a, a, a mind-blowing study I read in, two, I think it's 2008. It's a while ago now. The HSC commissioned Leicester Dumont University to um, to do some research. Training. Yeah, have you read it? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's ace. It basically because... says don't train people, make them fitter, or, or incentivize and facilitate fitness and strength. Like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> wow, can you believe it? I even yeah. put that to the HSE uh, in a conversation, uh, and I said, um, I said, you're based on this research. 
you know, an HSE doing anything about this? Are they trying to, you know, make make deals or, or try to work out, incentivize gyms and fitness? And you know, you basically found in this research through the through the um, I can't remember what their science division is called uh, HSL uh, through HSL. You basically said people need to be fitter and healthier and stronger and employers should try to incentivize and facilitate and support that. So what are you doing about that? And the response was, well, you know, if I went to a, if I went to a a business and, you know, they weren't doing any manual handling risk assessments or training, they were just sending people to the gym. um, You know, you would be breaking the law and we would have to enforce on you. And I'm like, you completely did not answer my question. Like, I'm not saying we're going to stop doing all of that. What I'm saying is, You've done some research. It's mind blowing um, so when you compare it to our traditional uh, what, what way of we, we're trained. Um, are you doing anything about it? And she couldn't. She wouldn't answer my question. She just kept saying, "You know, well, you, you still need to do your risk assessments." And I was just like, "That's not what I'm saying." But anyway, yeah, it was fascinating. But that is a great bit of research. Anyone should read it. It's just amazing because what it does is it also debunks anyone who is a consequentialist who believes that people carry out behaviours in line with consequences. Mm. Now, um, I know there are many people who do behavioural safety and they talk about, um, uh, you know, ABC. um, uh, 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 So my point being is, why do we believe that the consequences of our behavior change our behavior because we've got people who are overweight, people who, who know eat less, do more. And I know there are medical conditions that that's not relative to, so I'm not saying everybody. Uh, we know that alcohol is a poisonous, depressive drug. We know that, but we still do it. Yeah. We know that how much sleep, most people have got an idea of how much sleep is reasonable, you know, but we don't do it. We know that smoking harms us, but people still smoke. So my point being is, if the consequences of our behavior are, are not immediate, certain, and relevant to the person, the likelihood of consequences affecting behavior is low. And so why do we believe that, that, that it isn't? <laughs> And that's kind of like a fundamental flaw in this. I'm, I'm very conscious you haven't even in, introduced you yet, Simon. And, and I'm going to keep everything that we've just said because it's really good. Um, but I, I just wanted to tell this one piece and then I'll get you to introduce yourself. I think that, that in what you just said, there's a fundamental flaw in this argument between safety one and safety two. In the, safety one says, and, and I had Todd say this, and, and I've literally just had this revelation when you just said that. In the, Todd Conklin, I remember him saying to me, he's like, James, you, you don't think that behavior is a choice, right? And I was like, no, I, I get what you're saying. You know, the, the, the environment that defines the behaviors and all that stuff and the context drives the behaviors and all the science says, I, I get it, right? And then the safety one say, side, are, well, a couple of people that I've spoken to anyway and seen stuff on, on, on LinkedIn, um, there is this overarching thing that people choose to do the wrong thing. Now, safety two would say, well, that choice is influenced by several things. And I think I think there is a lot of value in that. But everything you've just said is right. We know that smoking is bad for us, yet we still smoke. Now, the safety two community will say, yes, but there's context to that. Social pressures, addiction, etc. I, I understand that. 
but we still choose to do it. So we still have some semblance of control in that process. So I think the fundamental flaw in this argument between one side saying behavior is a choice and the other side saying behavior is not a choice is, is actually fundamentally, the behavior is both. It is not a choice and it is a choice. And, okay. and you're arguing about the same thing. <clears throat> as I know that I don't exercise on a Saturday and Sunday, uh, but what I do do is do do, what I do do is I'll drink a bottle of wine or I'll have a couple of runs or a couple of beers, negating all of the exercise I did in the week. And I know that's a, not a good thing to do. And I still beat myself up about I'm not losing any weight, but I still continue to do it. I yeah. knew that when I used to smoke, it was killing me. Yet it took me years to, to, to quit. Years to quit. So, um, so this is where, um, if we consider that, I mean, that, that there are, in my opinion, um, some basic misunderstandings around choice anyway. We can, we can look at um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, who tells us that it's something like 90% of the decisions we make are, uh, of the things we do, don't, don't use system one, so they don't actually involve thinking. Yeah, it's only a small. I think it's ninety five percent. You know, it might be ninety two or whatever, but it's a lot. Only a very small amount of what we do is actually a choice, a conscious choice. Yeah, and that is because that's what we are as creatures. Mm. Now, the thing to understand there is is that's relevant information for both safety one and safety two, mm. because there are some things. If we understand that the creature is is actually um, when they are carrying out uh, tasks which are repetitive or um, you know sort of automatic tasks, the likelihood of them stopping and thinking um, is low. Yeah, we know that. So therefore, that's where your barriers come in place. Mm -hmm. Don't allow humans circumstances where humans can make poor decisions. Yeah. Okay. Safety two is based on a false premise. And that is that all humans want to and are capable of thinking. Well, that's not true. People don't want necessarily want to stop and think about things. Well, Sometimes safety, safety two would be on a premise that people want to do a good job and that they are they yeah. are whilst whilst they are fallible, they are also incredible problem solvers. That's how I would they're the, the two key things that I think I've taken out of safety two. Uh, I don't disagree with you, but problem solving is system two, not system one. So when you say system two and one, with the definition? So system two, sitting down, thinking about, not sorry, sitting down, but taking a step back, thinking it through. Well, what if I do yeah. that? What, yeah, will that give me that kind of an outcome? You know? Yeah. I mean, we don't even choose our marriage partners based on that, do we? <laughs> no. We don't buy houses based on that. What we do is find reasons why we think it's a good idea and go with it. Yeah. And disregard the negatives. And those reasons will change depending on the pressure that you're under. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I believe we are capable of it, but in order for, um, for people to exercise those amazing problem-solving skills, what has to be fundamental is before work is the way that we teach at school. Mm. What we do is we say, can you remember these facts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and um, I, I believe that um, there is a change in the education system. There's an, a really amazing guy called Ken Robinson who lectures 
about creativity and uh, do, do schools kill creativity? Um, and I see it all the time. You sit down and you do training with people and we ask them to be creative and, and solve problems and they just go, uh, I don't know what to do yeah. because they're not used to it. It's not that they're not capable. It's because they're not used to it. Yeah, it's so true. I, 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 I do this exercise in, in so many different training sessions um, and, I, and I use it for a number of things, but it's interesting when you see what happens, when you sit back and watch. Uh, I give the whole room, and it's, it's quite a common thing, it's, it's using Lego. Uh, it's very, very common uh, in America, especially. It's called Lego Serious Play. Uh, and this is just one, one aspect of it, one exercise of it. Uh, I give them all the same bricks and it's the, it's the bricks to make a duck. And all the same bricks, the same colours, the same amount of bricks, etc. I give every single person in the room those bricks. And I, yeah. and I say in a kind of jovial manner, does everybody know what a duck looks like? And they all say yes. And then I say, well, you're not going to be able to build a duck today because I've never seen a duck that's yellow and red. Uh, and they're the only bricks that you've got. But I would like you to use the bricks that you've got to make what you believe looks like a duck. And everyone goes, right, what do you mean? And I just say, well, build a duck. Yeah, but what do you mean? How do I build a duck? Just build the duck. You've seen a duck before, right? Yeah, we'll build a duck. Yeah, but what do you mean? And so many people really struggle with it because they're looking for instructions. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong, there, are, there, there was one particular lady I did this with and she freaked out, like she needed instructions. Now, it turned out, unbeknownst to me, nobody had told me that she actually suffers from a mental condition that, that requires her, she, she feels a lot of anxiety around that stuff, like, so she needs that. So she did fully freak out. But most people, like, I'm not going to use the word normal, but, you know, like people that are in a kind of consistent mental state, yeah. um, that don't have pre-existing conditions freak out and they can't get it. And I have to say to, I always have to say to the room about three or four times, just build a duck. Don't overthink it. You've got bricks in front of you, put the bricks in your hand and put them together and just see what happens. And you get some funny, you get some funny stuff. You get you know, like things that just don't look like ducks at all. And then you get, but what's interesting, and this is the reason I use it, is you rarely, I think in the years I've been doing it, you rarely, I've only ever had twice the same duck in the room, twice. One, they were sitting next to each other and they bloody copied each other, so that doesn't count. But the other one, I had three people build exactly the same duck when they were in different parts of the room. And that's never happened to me before. But yeah. normally, I normally use it to say, look how different we all are. And look how many different ducks we've got in this room. Now, that is 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 different ways to solve a problem. If our problem was build a duck, look at how many solutions we've got in this room. Yeah. And I agree. you're right. We, people do not know how to think for themselves. Uh, so it's important to, to work to instructions. So in order for safety to, to work, you've got a lot of stuff that needs to underpin it. Yeah. And so I think, I genuinely believe that there is more areas of commonality than they are difference Definitely. within the two camps or whatever, yeah. the two distinctions. I believe there is a lot of discussions where they, they haven't really attempted to understand the other side's position appropriately. 
Um, I think they can be, um, and that's based on my limited knowledge. I'm an expert in, in neither. No, I would agree. I would agree. Um, I think that that is it. But what do we need? We need critical thinking skills. We need creativity. We need problem solving. We need the ability to think logically. That's all philosophy. Mm. That's what it is. That's what philosophy is. Mm. Is ideas and saying, why do I think this? And you think it through. And you go, well, I think this, but now I've thought about it in a bit more, I realise that there's some flaws in that. I need to go and have a look at this. And there is this relationship. The reason why I'm studying psychology and philosophy is because they cross over like that. Where, um, so here's an example of one. So uh, there's a thing called moral look. So when we, maybe in six months time, we'll do a whole program on this moral look. So um, there's a psychologist called, um, it's a great name. He's called Fiery Cushman. What a great name. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, what should we call him? Uh, John, no, let's call him Fiery. There yeah. you go. Uh, he, he seems like a nice fellow. I've, I, I've never met him, but anyway. He's got but a fiery I've, temper, though. He seems like a really chilled fellow. I mean, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. Um, anyway, so basically he wanted to know. So this is quite interesting, and it relates to health and safety. So imagine two people are in a pub, Yeah. Both of them are drinking, have drunk, have drunk five pints of beer and they get in their cars and drive home. One of them skids off the road and lands in a, in a, in a bush but doesn't harm himself or others. The other one, unfortunately, skids off the road and there was a, somebody out there and it hits a person and, you know, you can imagine awful, yeah? Okay, so they both... Uh, our brains will say, well, yeah, we understand that both actions were morally wrong. And one was worse yeah. than the other. But we define greater punishment for the one who causes harm than the person who hits the bush. Mm. It would be unreasonable to say the person who hit the bush should get 15 years in jail. But Rosper's thing they're saying at the moment, and I, I, I've not thought about it enough to say whether I believe, they believe it's right or wrong, but they... Um, a life sentence for death caused by dangerous driving. That's what that's what they. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's one of their campaigns. I am not saying whether it's right or wrong. I'm just using this as an example. But it's so, a good challenge, isn't it? Like that, that, and I think that's your point. You're, that just putting that out there makes us think a bit more critically about it. It's the same cause, five pints for both yeah. of them. It's the same accident both going off the road but different outcomes so yes. in in essence i'm i'm sheer lucky that i didn't kill someone you're unlucky that you did kill someone you go to jail for life and i get six points of my license or whatever they do or whatever they do for that yeah. you see so it, the the moral the morality if the morality is this is always bad to do that just by sheer luck the outcomes of your immoral or your uh, awful behavior is different. Mm. So, so what we're doing is we're, we're changing the consequences and the way society views your immorality. Now it's definitely related to health and safety, it really is. Mm. But what we need to do is 
is, and I haven't figured it out yet how to do this properly. Um, what we need to do is, is to create a framework, a better guidance for us to understand that different moral concepts such as virtue ethics, um, consequentialism, and deontological, i.e. So virtue ethics is, doesn't tell you whether uh, the outcome of your behaviour is right or wrong or the way that you did it is right or wrong. It's about you. It's about virtue. So I think this is really relevant to the health and safety profession. We need a, um, an evolved and discussed and considered um, framework or model of health and safety, of virtues that a health and safety profession, professional um, should have. I, I think we, and we, we haven't done that yet. We haven't done that. I think that's something, a piece of work that needs to be done. We also need to, another type of ethics are, are common, I'm just used three broad concepts, is one called utilitarian. So utilitarian is, in its broadest of forms, is if you think about, we measure the consequences of our behaviors. And if the consequences are more good than bad, the behaviors are good. If the consequences are more good for more people, the consequences are good. So, that would be a consequential or a utilitarian approach to ethics. Um, now, where we, one of the ways we get ourselves confused is that we talk about anyone ever being harmed as being bad within a framework of where reasonably practicable. You're saying that if ever anybody is harmed, that's bad, and we should, we should carry out behaviours and put in control measures as long as they don't cost too much time, money, and effort. Well, that's a contradiction. But the opposite of that is everybody installing a gold standard, surely. Like reasonably practicable for me is a statement in which you allow a business to balance the risk versus the cost and the and the and the the resources etc so for example how i interpret that is that would i spend thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds on i don't know a bruise that i could get from a machine no would i spend thousands and thousands of pounds on uh losing a finger yes would you spend millions of pounds on losing a finger <laughs> for, yeah, for me yeah i would I, 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 I think, is there a number? Is there a, a billion pounds to prevent people losing a finger? Well, I don't think they should lose anything. I think if it's life changing, yeah, definitely. So, but I, I mean, it's not practical, is it? I get what you're saying, but what is practical then? What's the solution? Well, uh, well, we've got this idea of risk. And I mean, life in general involves risk, doesn't it? You know, crossing the road and all those, you know, everyday things that people may do, driving a car, going on an aeroplane, it involves risk. So, but, so if, if we wanted to ensure zero harm, then we would have no risk. There must be no risk. Because what we're also considering here as well is, is the vast majority of what we do in health and safety is reducing risk. It isn't actually reducing harm. Sometimes it is, but most of the time, 
it is reducing the risk of harm, isn't it? Yeah. There are some things where if I make sure there's none of that chemical in there, well, and if I breathe in the chemical, the person will be harmed. That's different. There are some things which are the consequences will always be if you go into that place and it's got the dangerous chemical in. There are some things that it's not a risk of harm, they are just harmful. Yeah. But the vast majority of what we do is about risk. Yes, I agree. So, so I... even, but even that, James, we've never, you, I can see it on your face, you've never considered it like that before. So if we're thinking about moral, moral methods, would we use a different method of morality or ethical model for when the harm will be guaranteed and when the harm may happen? So if the harm is guaranteed, we could use a deontological... Well, no, no, surely nothing is guaranteed. Well, um... I could, I could put a gun in your face right now and yeah. you have a bullet in it and it still might not go off. Yeah, you are right, yeah. Yeah, you are right. Um, um, and and you, you need to read some David Hume. Um, so, so, yeah, that's what he says, yeah. Um, well, okay then. Where the probability is so high, based <laughs> on, I mean, um, you know, incontrovertible evidence. Every human who's ever breathed in this chemical has always had this reaction. Yeah. It is reasonable to assume that any future humans who breathe in this chemical will have the same or a very similar reaction. Well, there we come back to reasonable and practicable, though. Exactly. So, reasonably practical is saying is in that instance, we must ensure that either uh, we, uh, we must ensure that our level of control is of such a level where the likelihood of people breathing in the chemical is so unlikely, um, then um, and whatever that costs, you know, um, yeah, it's so unlikely that it will happen uh, that somebody will breathe it in that that's how we manage the risk. So when we look at ethical models, we can use a rule-based approach to things that are pretty much guaranteed to cause this harm, if that harm is deemed as significant. We use one model for that, and we use a different model, a utilitarian model perhaps. Um, and an example of that is the, um, the uh, there's a thing called um, uh, the doctrine of double effect. So, what that says is, that says um, that we can create a small amount of harm as long as the result uh, of what we do, it creates a bigger amount of good. So as long as the amount of good is greater than the amount of harm, that's acceptable. Yeah, but now you're talking about the greater good. That, that, that's no different from the kind of military way of looking at or the political way of looking at the, the greater good. How, how can one quantify uh, the loss of one life when it saves a thousand lives? Because the loss of one life, uh, let's say that life is my daughter, right? That to me doesn't matter. I'd rather the rest of the world pass away than my daughter. Yeah. So, so it's, it's all relative. It, it, well, yes, I think I, I, I would agree with what you're saying there, but, but some um, approaches to health and safety doesn't consider relativism. It doesn't consider that. It uses an absolute approach. All harm is, to, is all bad. That's what it does. And, but, um, so there is an objective view, almost like a, a version of bad, which is 
is there for us to discover and is independent of our opinions of it. Are, are we not? Are we not actually saying that? Uh, we're not saying that that harm is bad because all harm is bad. It is bad. It hurts. No, it isn't. No, it isn't, James. No, it isn't. Define harm. What type of harm do you have that you like? Okay, well, you said you've got the gym. Well, you harm your body and and cause yourself physical pain, but that's a lesser harm or a harm that you're prepared to accept to get stronger and fitter and to play your games. Okay. All right. Okay. So, but uh, all right. So. All right, let me reword it then. So the, the harm in which we're talking about from a health and safety point of view. So is, if, give me an example. The cutting themselves, stubbing a toe, snapping an arm, losing a limb. Okay. Losing a life, right? But hang on, hang on, right? So I, I feel like what we're actually debating at work is is not, we're not trying to say all harm is is. I mean, I, in, this is my opinion because some people are trying to get, you know, zero harm and all that. But what, what I think we're actually trying to or supposed to do is not necessarily say zero harm because I think that's unattainable uh, or unachievable. What we're actually trying to say is zero harm that's not relative to the, to the benefits, like risk versus benefit from a point of view. So say, for example, your uh you're trying you know the wright brothers for example right trying to build the first plane right the benefit of that as we've now experienced here in 2020 is phenomenal we can travel all around the world in hours right that's unbelievable the benefit of that is absolutely massive they're going off they've they've built a plane they're, they're about to launch right and they're going into their first test flight the potential harm for that is pretty big crashes falls dies right yeah terrible yeah but in their opinion again this comes back to relativism your point but in their opinion it's worth the benefit so i feel like when we're at work we're not trying or we in my opinion shouldn't be trying to eliminate all risk or all harm probably is a better way to say it what we're trying to do is balance the harm versus the benefit uh I agree. I think that um, if I'm, not, I'm not really sure if I agree with myself on that point. <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I think we're saying something that's relatively similar. I think we're 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 saying that, but, but I think um, there is a, a, a few distinctions or a few elements to consider. There is one of them that that is one that we've never really got to grips with is the the notion of cons- consent so consent. i would imagine uh, consent right I, I i would imagine a test pilot and i know nothing about test pilots okay i uh, but i imagine they consent to uh, <laughs> sorry that's the um sorry it's all right uh, um, yeah, that they consent, they understand what they're doing could go wrong and the implications of what they're doing if it does go wrong. If the, you know, God knows how high they go, 10,000 feet. If it goes wrong, they're gonna, it's not going to be nice. They understand that. Um, now, in our, uh, in our notion of health and safety as a general sort of approach is, is we don't... Um, um, we don't necessarily believe that people should have, should have the ability or the capability of consenting 
to carrying out behaviours which could result in harm. If you look at so uh, if you look at other really important interventions that we have in society, Luna, come here, come here. She's scratching the floor. Sorry. Um, so, for example, if 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 somebody had a, a medical condition and the doctor said, well, we think that you could, um, you could make a recovery uh, if you had an operation, we understand that that individual has a choice whether they have the operation or not. We can't make them do it. There's this concept of autonomy. So that's an ancient profession, the medical profession, isn't it? You know, go back to the Hippocratic Oath and, and all that. I mean, it's been going for thousands of years. Another really ancient profession is law. You know, it goes back a very, very long time, thousands of years. Um, so in law, you can choose whether you, whether you want to follow your, uh, your solicitors, as long as, you know, you're deemed as being psychologically competent to make a decision, you're not, you know, you've yeah. not been sectioned. Um, you can choose whether you want to plead guilty or this or that and the lawyer says that you do this or that. You get the right to choose. You don't, in theory, get the right to choose to retain your own risk with health and safety. I'm not saying we should, by the way. Well, I'm, I'm not saying we should allow people to do that. Well, no, well, I disagree on that. I think, I think you should. Do okay. Well, you think... To a point, but what we need to understand in health and safety, the nature of it is the risk isn't just to you. Um, we understand the risk to your family, but what about the risk to the business and your co-workers? What about your risk to, if I carry out to, uh, if, I, if, I, um, if I choose to work towards the edge, you know, uh, um, at working at height in an unsafe way, the risk that I'm doing the, in the current framework that we've got is not just to me, it's to others as well, isn't it? It's yeah. to the business, it's to your colleagues, it's to your, I mean, your family, again, that's um, obviously important, but it, it's not necessarily relevant in this conversation. I think what I'm trying to say more than anything is, is where we are, is in a position where we haven't really considered appropriately how we approach morality and ethics. We just haven't considered it. And we haven't, we are such a, a relatively new profession that we are literally hundreds of years behind established professions. So one of the things, and this really gets my goat, IOSH, Double IRSM, British Safety Council, all these big hitters, whatever they are, have no consistent ethical standard. None of them have got the same standards. Why? Trying to have a commercial edge over the other one, I suppose. And I, I well, they just—they uh, they just, in my in my understanding, they just haven't even—they don't even talk to each other about it. Yeah. Whereas, like the Hippocratic Oath is pretty much universal, isn't it, with everybody? It is within that framework, but we have an international code of ethics for occupational health professionals. None of our established organisations have made any reference to it. None that I'm, that I'm aware of. I've been through, you know, you search on the websites and there's 111 pages. I've done them. I've been through them. I can't find it. 
this international code of ethics. I can't find it for our profession. We just ignored it. The first thing we've got to do if we're going to get to grips with morality and ethics is get all the people together in a room and create a framework which is appropriate for any form of occupational health and safety role. And, and once we've got that framework, then if we have a health a person in a business and they're employed as a health and safety professional, that framework forms the basis of your role that you talk, you talk about this with your, your line manager or the directors and say, this is my framework. that I, I can only operate under these circumstances, uh, on, under this framework. And if we are carrying out work and it doesn't meet this framework, how do we go about discussing it? And, and what we need to do is, is agree how we approach ethical and moral dilemmas when we start the job. And if we have that standard, so we'd have to go to the Institute of Directors and um, whoever business leaders are, we'd have to go to them and they have to be educated. And they need to understand that if you, whoever's doing your health and safety role must comply or must follow these, this ethical framework and they need to be educated. And, and so you, I employ you as a health and safety officer. Right, James, brilliant. Right, and you say, right, Si, thanks for the job. Great. I just want to confirm before we start, this is the ethical framework for my profession, and we just need to talk through what that looks like in, in, in my role. So if I come across a situation which I believe could threaten that framework, how do we go about dealing with that? What do we do? How do we discuss it? What do we do if we disagree? Now, in the law profession, if you and I disagree, we can go to the law society and they can arbitrate. In the medical profession, they, they will have philosophers and ethics councils that can help arbitrate on ethical and moral decisions. And they've been thinking about this medical ethics and um, legal ethics, the ethics of law, but thousands of years, and they still have to go to arbitration sometimes. Because, oh, we haven't thought of that. Right, okay. We're so far behind, but we, our starting point is gobbing it off about ethics and morality and good and bad, rah, we throw all those words around, but it's based on, it's got nothing to stand on. There are no foundations, not really. Are, they, do, they do all have ethics, don't they? Like ethical standards and ethical framework, like IOS do have an ethical policy or standard, I can't remember what they call no, it. No, they have a code of conduct. Right. Uh, uh, so my right, question about it is that is ethics, but a different title, or well, it, it involves ethical behaviours, yes. But I, I will, I will ask you now: if we went out and asked every health and safety professional, can you tell me the four elements of the code of conduct? I guarantee that only a very small percentage could tell you what that is. I was worried you were going to go, James, tell me the four, and I was going, I don't fucking know, I've never read them. <laughs> of course we haven't, because what we do is, it's one of those things where we believe we know what ethics is. And I mean, there's so much work to be done on this. So generally, from the health and safety profession, we tend to talk about the ethics of others. They didn't invest in this. They didn't carry out that behavior. That's good. That's bad. That's unethical. 
But the first thing we've got to do is define what ethical means for ourselves. And we can do that by using virtue ethics. And we can create a framework that is appropriate for all members of the uh, health and safety profession. And, 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 but that needs to be defined by the group. I, one thing I'm really reticent about is, is I don't want anyone to think that I think I have the answers because I don't. I'm neither clever, clever enough or knowledgeable enough or have the level of expertise on my own to create these things. What I'm trying to do is to stir this shit up so we do that ourselves because if we're carrying as we're doing we're just gobbing it off without any framework or substance we we haven't really got anything i think it makes sense because i think i think oh, what you're saying is, is, is quite is really interesting definitely but but quite sensible because i think when i look at i mean we've mentioned safety one and safety two a few times and, and and we are putting this on the end of that that debate so or that mini series so it's worth using that as an example when i see and i would probably say that the safety two community are worse at this right one of the overarching principles of safety two is people are not the problem right and the easiest way i'll summarize this is that I think that most people in the safety two community follow that that principle unless that person is saying that safety two is rubbish and they're classed as safety one in which case most safety people go the people are the problem if you get what i'm saying the way they act is they they they, they seem to lose all of their safety two principles when they argue or debate with a safety one person you know all these safety one people just don't get it you know they don't understand it what you're saying that they're the problem and they are people. So you're in, con you're in direct contradiction of your principle of yeah. when you haven't even started. And there's probably two, there's, there's one very prominent person in this space that comes to mind. Um, probably two or three could um, fall into that as well. Um, I'm not going to mention them. I'm not, this is not the place to slag people off, but it, it just, when I read a lot of their stuff and I'm thinking, well, you're just essentially bullying that person or you know i've seen i've seen somebody who who's supposed to be a doctor of psychology psychology who is very prominent in this space that speaks a hell of a lot of sense but basically wrote an entire blog an entire blog off the back of one prominent safety one person uh their promotional advert i mean simon this was just a this was just a photo with a piece of work you know like an infographic photo of a word in a phrase through the middle this person wrote an entire blog five pages it was pretty much slagging off that one post and going into why it's wrong and all this and that i just think it, all that is is just bullying all you've just done is bullied that person now yeah. now don't get me wrong that person who they were attacking is also very aggressive so you know maybe they've tried to talk in the past maybe there is some context to that but again but i, I read it and i'm like you're not sticking to your own principles here. This whole blog is basically saying how this person is wrong and these people just don't get it. This whole blog basically said people are the problem. It said your, your entire uh, paycheck is built on the fact that you've invented this phrase saying people are not the problem, hmm. unless those people are talking about safety one, in which case they are the problem. And I'm yeah. just like, so I feel like if we had a bit more of a phrase, I feel like I could go to any doctor England, America, you know, uh, uh, 
anywhere Asia around the world and, and ask them what the Hippocratic Oath is and they would turn around and say with that boom this is it yeah and they would have that foundational piece that talisman that they tie every single decision and, and conversation and debate to but I think you're right in the fact that we don't have that Therefore, no, we, we have these safety one, safety two discussions. We don't really have anything that, that, that we feel like we, we have no commonality with anyone because we just think like, oh, they're basically saying that we're rubbish and, and we're basically saying they're rubbish. And it's like, no, it's not, not like that. Um, so, yeah. So um, well, the fir first essay I ever wrote, um, uh, I forget, it, it, it was about... Um, um, it was about personhood, um, about um, am I this, uh, basically am I the same person now as I was when I was 10? And if I get to 80, will I be the same person? And if so, what makes me me? That was the first thing I ever, the first one I ever did. And I was saying, oh, and I wrote it, well, this person was trying to do this and uh, the, the different philosophers who said things, they, they were in this context and they were trying to achieve this and trying to achieve that. And, and my lecturer rang me up and he said, Simon, he said, I, I need to explain a concept called charity. He said, in philosophy, whenever you want to make a comment about another person's argument, you must always, always, as a matter of principle, behave in a charitable way to their argument. You must always um, uh, approach their argument that gives you the best opportunity to actually consider what they're saying rather than the motivations behind it. Yeah, like local rationality, kind of similarly to that. Yeah. So that also, in modern day terms, we could look at that from an intellectually humble point of view yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and unfortunately on a, on, a, on a really sort of simplistic basic level between a, you know a, a line manager or a supervisor and a worker um, when we talk about health and safety um, in my experience many of those conversations are not charitable they are Charlie is this they're full of biases Charlie is that um, they are not. They, are, they don't create the time or the space to consider what's being said, um, and, and so uh, they they don't they don't create the opportunity to for people to be the solution rather than the problem. So um, just to talk, uh, uh, to, just to um, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to expand on that because I think I would be diluting the good point that you raised. Do you think that it, a lot of it comes down to the fact that we don't really know enough about we, we we seem to operate a helicopter view on a lot of things like we tag on to like one liners and things like that like people are not the problem and I think what does that actually mean. I, I agree, but it's underpinned by uh, so things like um, technical memberships or chartered memberships. I'm a chartered member of IOSH. I've been for God knows that well, however long 2006 I think you started it. I was a member before then. But I have no knowledge, no real knowledge, no, no knowledge of any worth about scaffolding yeah. or about um, deep dig excavations or cranes or whatever. Uh, I, I think that we expect too much of our health and safety professionals. And I think that we are obsessed with certificates. 
Yeah, 100%. Somebody puts a certificate on LinkedIn and you'll get Thousands. 800 people go, wow, brilliant. But yeah. somebody wants to discuss something of value, we're not interested. Yeah. Um, we are obsessed with it. Yeah. And we, but when you talk to people on a one-to-one basis, they understand certification doesn't equate to competence. We get it, but we still carry on. We just still carry on doing it. I, I um, agree on that point. I get more messages from you on YouTube and from the podcast on what course shall I do? Um, will this course get me a job over here or in that country or whatever? Will this course get me manager jobs? And I'm just like, no, no, it won't. Yeah. Not if you get a good manager job. If you get a shit manager job, then yeah, it will. Um, yeah. But it doesn't really, I always kind of explain our traditional way of educating safety professionals as it's like learning to drive. You don't learn to drive until you pass your test. You don't yeah, learn yeah. to do safety until you've got your new Bosch. Once you've got it, that's when you learn the real job. And it's kind of like, isn't it, isn't it ironic as well that like we teach safety professionals, in my opinion, we teach safety professionals the complete wrong stuff. So I have not long ago done my, and I had a very good conversation around this with, with Ron Gant. He he used to, I think he might still do them, but I don't, I don't get time to go on them anymore, but he used to basically just set up Zoom calls with about 10 to 15 people open to anyone that could come along and we pose a question that would be it. And we would just discuss it. We would just, it was a free for all, but it, I, it was the best. It was the best. It was like, we were all very amicable, professional. Um, you know, we would have a laugh. We would just chat and we would just think about thinking. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and anyway, they get to my point. They, we asked a question about what is the safety education, how we educate the safety professional. And I said in there, like, you know, we're talking about how we educate safety. I think we're talking about the wrong things. Like, we, we educate people. So let's say you're an engineer, right? You're, let's say you're a welder. You're a welder, right? You've been a welder for 20, 30 years, Simon, yeah? yeah. You know welding inside and out, right? Yeah. It's your bag. I've just done my knee bosh, general certificate, two-week course, and I am now a technical member of IOSH. And my boss says, I want you to sort welding out. So I go and get the ACOT, I get it, and I write this massive guidance document. I come to you, Simon, you need to work to this now. Now, don't get me wrong, some people should do it properly and we encourage people to engage with Simon the welder, except, but I don't see that. I don't see that's how people work. There is this assumption that because I've, I've had this traditional safety education of doing knee bosh and getting grad and getting chartered or whatever, that I know more than Simon the welder who's been doing it for 20, 30 years. Now, yeah. isn't it a fundamental flaw in how we educate our welders that you need me to do a, a knee bosh to come and tell you how to be safe? Those safety critical parts of welding, shouldn't you know that? And shouldn't my job to be to facilitate conversations, to help us innovate, to assess risk and work out how I communicate what Simon the welder is doing with the board? Isn't isn't all those softer skills that we're now finally starting to talk about, aren't they actually the fundamental skills of a safety professional? Not the fact that I've done a course that means I can remember what year the Health and Safety at Work Act was written? Yeah, I agree. So for me, this alien. 
This is what it no. This is what it looks like in practice, James. So I um uh, I don't know if you know my background. I was um in the fire brigade for a bit. I was in the army for a bit. Then I was in the fire brigade, and I think I was probably an average firefighter. I don't think <laughs> I, I don't think I was the best. Uh, mm. I tried. Um, I don't think I was the best. I think I was probably okay as a leading fireman as a sub. I think I was quite a good station officer. I'm not saying I was the best station officer, but I think I was quite good. Um, and, and that is, you know, um, uh, you, you know, I may be completely wrong, but that, you know, that that's my opinion anyway. So I remember I turned up to a fire, a fire in, um, it was like a derelict building, it was three stories high. And we turned up to this fire and the fire's in the roof and, um, and the hydraulic platform was there, you know, the, the, the big with the basket on, you know, that has all yeah. the water that comes out of it, yeah. was there. And um, this guy come up to me and says, right, right, boss, um, you know, Maria, what do you want? And, I, I, and my question to him was, uh, what do you think you can do? Tell me what you can do. Because I never, ever rode the hydraulic platform. I never did any training on it. But other than basic firefighting and really, yeah. I didn't know what it could do. I said, tell me what you can do. Tell me what you can give me. And they said, well, I can give you this amount of water and I think this and I think that. And if I do this, I can, we can fire stop there. And I said, brilliant, just hang on. The emergency salvage tender there. Tell me what you can give me. Tell me what you can do. And then, and then all I did is listen to what they, they were the experts, not me. And I said, well, right, you can give me that. You can give me that. I'm trying to aim this. Let's do it. Yeah. There is a difference between, which I thought was really cool. When we turn up to a building that's on fire, the firefighters that go into the building, I have very little, if any, control over what they do. So within the fire service, I don't know what they're doing at the moment, but when I was there, they have this idea of a safe person concept. So the idea is ensure that people are competent in their core skills and they can and they really are competent not just like oh yeah we'll go through the motions no they really can do it and if they've got those core skills then believe in them then when they're in the building believe in them that they can achieve and use their skills and knowledge to make appropriate decisions train properly recognize whether people are or are not competent and address it give people the ability to suggest what training they need rather than telling them what they need. Mm. Why do we tell people what they need to do their job? Why don't we ask them, what manual handling training do you need? Mm. Uh, well, I do this and I do that, and that's a bit I struggle with, so I need that. Oh, okay, well, let's do that then. Mm. Health and safety professionals generally don't do that. Mm. They, they may believe they do, but they don't. So with a company, we've been working with them now for six years, we've reached a point where um, they needed, um, they're quite a big company, a few thousand workers, and they, they recognise um, they need to do some chemical training about taking chemical deliveries, big tankers, horrible chemicals, um, people who take the deliveries. So we've got to a point with them now where we said, right, okay, um, don't tell them what they need to know. Ask them what they think they need. Look at that in relation to the legal requirements and things that the operative wouldn't understand 
and then create training based on a collective approach. And then lockdown came, but it, it, it will happen. Uh, so again, training is, is often, this is what you need. What we should say is, what do you need? Tell us where, what that where is. Do you get to a point where like, sometimes people don't know what they need? Sometimes, you know, so let, let's, let's take the safety one, safety two thing, right? You might be quite comfortable as a business owner with your safety one approach and you're none the wiser that yeah. you know safety two could in theory based on some people's statements i commit to neither <laughs> um that safety two could make you a lot more safer yeah they don't really know until like do you know i'm do you know what i'm trying to say like uh you know people thought electricity was nuts until they had it you know people thought the light bulb was crazy you know when 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 all factories were steam and but you know were, were next to rivers and they said well we've got electricity you now we can bring it into the center of the town we can have factories any, everywhere everyone's like nah that's crazy that's never going to work you know the same with phones you know blackberry said we're not going to have touchscreen because um we think people like the feel of pressing a button now everybody's got a touchscreen like there is, I think there is an aspect to 100% and I wholeheartedly agree with everything you've just said. Um, and I would just, I personally, I would just interject at one point into say, we also exist to say, play, to play de professionals devil's advocate. So if someone goes, well, I don't need any training and then it's our job to say, well, what about this? Or I do need the training, I need this. So here, here's a good example, DSE, right? Yeah. You do a DSE assessment or you get your manager to have a conversation with their with their subordinate, whatever you want, their team member, right, on doing a DSE assessment. Do it together, please. They come back and say, right, he wants a chair. He wants, a, he wants an ergonomic chair because he's got a back. He's got a bad back. You know, he's struggling, right? Okay. What's a chair going to do? Well, so it's like an ergonomic chair, isn't it? So it's going to help him. Right? But how else is he sitting? Yeah. You know, what's he working off? Well, he's only working off a tiny laptop. Oh, in that case, the chair's not going to fucking help at all yeah. because you're just going to work, have the same posture because you're stuck on that chair. Yes, it's a £7,000 chair, but you're working off a laptop. So I think our job as well is whilst say to them, you know, what do you think you need? And then we also work out what does the legislation say, granted? What does the guidance say, granted? And we go, hmm, he thinks he needs this. I think he needs this. We need to have a discussion here to say Definitely. what's what's the middle ground or which one's better. Do you know what I mean? Like someone could think I need to have, I don't know, work in a height training. And I'll be like, well, actually, is there a need for you to work at height at all? Yeah. Is there a better way to do this? Like yeah. I think that approach, those two worlds collide together. They have this baby, which is the perfect safety professional. <laughs> so, so I mean, the, the question really is, is can we get to a position where people are um, feel engaged to a point and have the, uh, is it possible for them to be engaged? And is it preferable for them to be engaged? Uh, what's the benefit? Uh, is there any benefits? Is there any negatives? If there's more negatives than benefits, I won't do it. Um, so so the, the, the thing to consider there is, is um, I, 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 ju I just want to take a step back um, Right, uh, DSC is one of the things I find quite interesting. 
you know, it's one of the very few laws where there are absolute requirements for us to carry out risk assessments. Right. It isn't where reasonably practicable. Did you know that? To carry out a risk assessment? Yeah. To Which risk assess... There is a, under the management of a whole percent of your workout is required to carry out a risk assessment for pretty much everything. Or, or do you um, the DSE rate? No, 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 you have to you have to risk assess. Sorry, we'll get technical here. We have to risk assess hazardous workplace activities. Yeah, but DSE specifically requires you to carry out an absolute his, requirement to risk assess all workstations and all users or operators. Yeah, um, many businesses um, really misunderstand this law. Um, they they believe that a self-assessment is a risk assessment, um, where I would argue that it isn't. It contributes to the risk assessment, but it isn't the risk assessment. Yeah. Um, but it also brings a really interesting question. And, and, and this, and, and a question where, where I, I'm not so sure if safety one or safety two has really addressed this. Last year in the UK, uh, HSC stats, there was 111 people killed at work yeah. and thousands killed through health issues. Yeah. Thousands. Okay, so why are we talking about safety? Why aren't we talking about health? Yeah. If we actually are talking about the effects on people's bodies and lives, why aren't we talking about health? Mm. It really, really gets my goat. Safety yeah. this, safety that. That is one of my, um, so there, there is one prominent system and person within the safety two community that, that says, um, focus on the stuff that kills you. Um, sticky, they call it. And, uh, and I think I get where they're going with it and I understand it, but I kind of tweak that to say, focus on the stuff that matters oh. to you. Because well, I, I think DSE, in my opinion, can be debilitating and can be if you're if you're just running if you're just running offices and you're not traveling you're not doing anything you're literally just people commute to work they sit in an office you've just got thousands of offices around the world dse is the biggest risk or stress yeah. stress probably is the biggest risk and dse from a physical point of view is probably the next one down right can and i just stop you there one second yeah and then we'll we'll carry on yeah what why is it a risk why is it a risk to humans? What do you say? In yeah, that specific well, scenario. But what, what why yeah, what, what is it about with humans? Well having impacts on your health, wouldn't it? We are hunter-gatherers. So going back to what we were saying before, our body has evolved to move. DC involves sitting still. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think I, I always said to my wife, you know, nothing stagnant is good. Which is bad, stagnant water is bad, stagnant people are bad. Yes. Yeah, yeah I agree with that point. I agree. Sorry, sorry, um, um, to, uh, to intercede there. Uh, no, I like you. No, that was, that was wrong with me. I do apologize, James. Right. You were on a, you, you were on a flow there, weren't you? Weren't you? So that, that was, that was in, in, and that was, no, I shouldn't have done that. So, um, no, yeah. like, whoa, 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 whoa. You've listened to this podcast before, right? This, yeah. is, this is not the kind of podcast we apologise for getting passionate and, in, and, in, and interrupting some of them. Yeah, but I, 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 it's about my standards. That's what, you know. Right, okay. um, so so any, 
so talking about the health, so this is something which um, you can probably, I've got a question for you. Oh, go on then. Does either safety one or safety two consider well-being? Uh, mm, does it does it specifically say focus on well-being? No, in my in my limited knowledge, does it deal with well-being if you operated under the framework of safety two or hot? In my opinion, yes, if that makes sense. So a heavy part of what I would say is a, a huge problem with stress and well-being in the workplace is a lack of engagement, a lack of involvement, a lack of autonomy, um, yeah. a, a, a lack of trust, uh, I think, is a huge part, a lack of open and honest conversations. I think how we're taught to manage people causes a lot of our stress and well-being issues in the fact that I dictate, we've, we've just spoken about this or over from, diff, from different points of view, but I dictate to you, Simon, the work that you should be doing. That's right. not a collaborative approach. I think that creates a very stressful situation. Now, I think one of the fundamental principles of safety too is engagement, trust, uh, honesty, openness, and things like that. So a lot of people I've spoken to have said safety two is basically just safety one with a couple of things. Those couple of things being uh, a definition and an understanding between the gap between work as done and work as imagined, which for those that don't know what that means, is basically your paperwork and what happens in reality, the gap between those two things. Um, so that's about like decluttering your system, the work of David Provan and Drew Ray. Um, and then the next thing is psychological safety. So in theory, safety too, and again, this is interpretation from people and you know the academics will probably say, no, that's not what I meant, but this is just how they've interpreted it and how I kind of interpret it. It's, you do safety one, you get compliant, you do your systems, you get your paperwork, and then you go back to what you're doing and you look at it and go, well, what we've got, does that reflect reality? And now we need to add psychological safety because fundamentally psychological safety is engagement, is leadership, is honesty, is trust, et cetera, and all that stuff. Um, so in answer to your question, I don't think it directly says in the words, you know, focus on well-being. But I do think that if you followed that approach, it would. Now, one last caveat to this very long answer to your very simple question. I also think that behavioural-based safety done correctly, which is commonly classed as safety one, I think behavioural-based safety done correctly also does the same. If you listen to Tim Marsh, you listen to Professor Scott Geller, two very prominent people in behavioural-based safety, which are regularly classed as safety one professionals, yeah, they also talk about exactly the same stuff. So, in my opinion, yes, it does. But so does safety one, depending on what you class as safety one and safety two. Yeah, there's okay. a very long, convoluted answer to your very simple question. So, um, in the few conversations I've had with people who are um, who uh, who propose that the only way is safety one. Um, I've asked them that question. I've said, okay, um, the impact of the method 
um, where I will tell you what to do, and you, um, and it's um, it's it less facilitates the ability for engagement and for making your own decisions um, and problem solving and and coming up with your own solutions and being creative. Um, have you considered the effect on well-being of that? And of the people who I've spoken to, they've said, well, well-being in that context is less important. That's what they've said. But then when we look at the, goodness knows how many hundreds of thousands, 800,000 or whatever, people who are experiencing stress, depression and anxiety that's work-related, would it be that if we are interested in harm, that improving that engagement, which is my understanding of one of the elements of safety too and safety differently, it, it may or may not statistically affect safety, but it should, in theory, affect well-being. So unless we're asking the question about well-being, which physical safety and physical, um, um, so you know, having only bits and bobs in the right places and not dying and all that, is an element of well-being, but only that. Yeah. Surely we should be thinking of a bigger picture. Well, yeah, and I, and I think that I think that is the thing that that safety apparently, you know, uh, we get ourselves into a fucking minefield with this stuff. But the 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 work within the safety two space in the you know what is the context that drives that behaviour? I think well-being, stress, mental health, you know, attention all of that stuff, presenteeism, absent, you know, that is one and few and collection of the context that defines the behavior. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'll out again with what I said, is so safety two, a very prominent person in safety two says the context drives the behaviors, I think is his phrase. Now, again, Professor Scott Geller, who is regularly classed as safety one, he says, the environment defines the behaviors which is exactly the same thing now could you say the environment the word environment maybe limits us to the physical environment yes you could so maybe context is a better word because that opens it up to what's the mental and less obvious environment so you you know i mean there's stories out there that i mean i'll probably remember the one of the very popular case study of that gentleman that was cleaning the inside of a, of a commercial oven and, and his father-in-law turned on the oven and, and that guy, you know, died. Unfortunately, it's quite, quite a, um, a popular story, case study. Um, you know, the context of that is we, we knew that. And this is, this is my fundamental argument. Is I think that if you do safety right, we did this anyway. So, you know, what were the context to that? Oh, my battery's just gone, but I am still here. What was yeah. the context to that story and that they you know the footy was on it was a friday they wanted to get it done quickly etc etc so i think that's my fundamental question my point on this is that we, we we we're all talking about the same stuff in a way yeah we are and and so let's work together um and use our ability to communicate and um and and, and let's create virtues within the health and safety industry where we believe that it's ethical to give full credence to and to give ourselves the time and um, to fully understand another person's point of view and to respond with charity 
and appropriately um, and not just um, just bully each other, which is what you see a lot of. I like the, um, the charity piece. And I think that this episode will go out along, uh, you know, with a week's different from another gentleman that talks a, a, a lot that, that what we lack in the safety two and safety one space is, is local rationality. You know, everybody absolutely destroys Heinrich every day. The Heinrich triangle, the domino theory, they say, oh, it's stupid. I heard it just the other day, you know, I was on a webinar and they said, so we all know that the triangle is stupid. Um, I was in, I, I was, uh, yeah, anyway, they, they, they gave this, this story where they said, you know, you know, that triangle thing is stupid. Um, well, you listen to this gentleman, Carsten Bush, who's come, who will we'll publish probably a week before or the week after this. Um, when you listen to what how he described it and how it was originally intended to be interpreted, it's not that stupid. And it actually makes sense. And what people lack when they judge it is a lot of local rationality in that the geezer wrote the triangle when we were driving around in frigging horse and car. Give the guy a break. It's not <laughs> stupid. It's just not 2020. Like, what the world is different. Like, we don't say the guy that invented the first wheel is stupid because that first wheel led to the wheels that we have now. Yeah. Yet we, we seem to go in, in safety, like, oh, the triangle is stupid. It's not stupid. Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, how many times can we think of things where we, we, we carry out a behaviour and we might get some minor injury or very nearly got injured? It just... It, it, you know what? It just makes sense, doesn't it? That if you, if it's in winter and you go outside your front door and you and it's icy and you slip but don't fall over ten times, there will be a time somewhere in the future where you will slip and fall over. Well, that, that's exactly my point on it. In that, when people say to me now, I mean, don't get me wrong, there is a podcast we've already put out from I think about maybe nearly a year ago now in which I was talking to somebody and he said, you know, the triangle is stupid. And I sat there and was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't talk to Carsten and have this different way of, of thinking about it with a bit of local rationality. But how I look at it now is that the triangle is not stupid. It, 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 the people that are stupid are the people that take it literally in that you get 8,000 near misses, which means you'll get 200 accidents, which means you'll get one fatality. And they're like waiting for number 8,000. So then they're like, right, now we're going to have 100 accidents. It doesn't freaking work like that. What they're trying to say is, is that the amount of near misses and the amount of accidents you have are indicators yeah. to the fact that there's a problem somewhere. It's not yeah. a direct correlation, which some people say that's what Heinrich was trying to say. Now, I don't really care whether he, he says that or not, but I think the triangle is a very simple way for us to say that, if you're having a lot of shit go wrong, that's an indicator that something bigger is wrong behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree. That's what I think the triangle does. Uh, I, I agree, uh, and 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 I like it because I think it's I think it, it is actually um, it is actually an everyday experience for people. Um, you know, I nearly caught my my hand in in the front door before because the dogs dash in every day. Um, you know the 
they dash in and they almost catch my hand about 10 times. And about once a month, I actually do bang my fingers in the side of the door because my spaniels go barmy and they, they, they go running around. Yeah. So, and so that's indi- an indication of poor dog owning. <laughs> you know, like, uh-oh, lack you know, of <laughs> lack of training, poor, yeah, rubbish dog owning. So, yeah. Um, well, I think I, how many times do we do it on a daily basis? The amount of times I go, don't leave that there, James, because if you leave that there, that's going to really piss you or your wife off when you trip over it or something like that. But I still choose to leave it there, which comes yeah. back to our original point around choice. Because, yeah. and, and it comes back to the original argument of, you know, there are contexts that drive those behaviours. I'm tired or I'm busy, I'm in a rush. Like, yeah, I get that. But it's an indicator that something else is demanding my attention or my time or there's, there's something wrong and I only got two hours sleep last night or or whatever um it is it's always context to the situation and what i think the triangle does is it tells you to look for that context so i think the people on the safety two side that say the triangle is stupid i think they're completely missing the point in my opinion i agree uh, i i agree the triangle um, um those people who say it's um it's completely irrelevant, which I, I, you know, I haven't had a direct conversation with somebody, but if, if anyone who said that must also say then that the, um, uh, that a systemic or uh, a looking at the environment or the circumstances which influence behavior are irrelevant mm. because they are part of the circumstances. Yeah. What's happened in the past it's reasonable to use that as a, a means of, of, of us giving us some indication of what is likely to happen in the future. Mm. To say that doesn't exist is... is well, well, this, this is what we were talking about earlier, and this is like the lack of... Uh, um, well, the lack of local rationality as well, but, but also we judge things on a helicopter view. Mm. So we judge behavioural-based safety based on the way that some people implemented it and that we... We tell people these are the wrong behaviours, you do the wrong behaviours and you punish them. Now, I'm, I'm of the belief that I, from the behavioural-based safety professionals that I've spoke to and listened to and read, I don't think that's how they approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of, you know, there's an interview out there with Professor Scott Geller on Sonny Gopal's um, podcast in which, um, you know, he even says how we implemented behavioural-based safety was not how I originally intended it to be. Uh, marketed out but I, I can't control the consultants so I think the problem here is we go oh fucking hell bad go by safety stupid the domino theory stupid but actually we only really scratch the surface to what it really is yeah. or what it was really intended to be like how many people on the safety one side judge Eric's work Todd's work and, and Sydney's work but actually haven't really read any of their work and, and, and vice versa, it happens both sides. I think Sydney misrepresents behavioural-based safety in, in, in numerous of his work. I genuinely stand by that. And if he ever decides to come on this podcast and answer my emails, I will directly ask him that question because yeah. I'll have to, because I've told people I will, um, yeah. but he won't come on. So anyway, that aside, I think we just do this all the time. We, we take a helicopter view of something, we scratch the surface of something and we... We, 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 we talk like we're experts on that knowledge when actually we have a very little knowledge of a certain subject. Can, can you have an opinion on something? 100%. You can scratch the surface of something and have an opinion. But I think that opinion should be caveated, caveated by, I don't really know enough about it, but on my 
face level of understanding, this is my opinion. That's acceptable, I think. So here's a phrase for you. Okay, you ready? So me dad, when he when I was younger, he, he was... Um, uh, the phrase is me dad when he was younger. That's not no, no. So, so <laughs> me dad used to say this to me mum. So if me dad did something that was a bit that in hindsight is stupid, he used to, she, me mum would say, right, bloody hell, you know, and have a go at him. And he'd say, listen, given the information in front of me and my ability to perceive it, I made that decision. Now, I, I, now I'm more able to understand the information or have a different source of information. I may have chosen to have done it differently. And she used to go, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so my point being is, is being curious, being open. Do you know what? I realize I, I realize my depth of knowledge of this in, in this subject is perhaps less than it ought to be. Um, if it's something that's really important for to enable me to do my job, um, then I need to um, provide the, the appropriate time and effort to actually do it properly. And if it's not that important, who cares? Mm. If, it, if, it, if it doesn't make a difference, then so what anyway? Then, you yeah. know, you might be interested. But I but... think you should, I think that people should be a bit more, a bit more respect for that charity piece that you were talking about. I think people should be a bit more respectful of other people's work before they go and, and take a stance on it. I think that you can, you can either scratch the surface or you can dive deep into something and have an opinion. I agree on that point. Yeah. I don't think at any time is it acceptable to call somebody stupid, to say your work was stupid, um, to, you know, Dominic Cooper was interviewed on this podcast. He was a very prominent and at times aggressive uh, safety one advocate. You know, he's pretty much taken on his life goal to um, stop the safety differently movement. Yeah. Whatever. But he, he kind of mentioned in the conversation that I had with him that Sidney Decker did a keynote and kind of negatively referred to Dominic's work whilst Dominic was in the audience. Now, I'm not being funny. That would piss me off. That's bad manners. Do you know what I mean? That would piss me right off. And would I then decide to go on some crusade to shut down Sydney's work and get my own back? Maybe I would. Depends on my kind of psychological position. But it's, it's, it, it's a, if we had a bit of, to, your, to use your phrase, charity, when we were n negatively kind of arguing or debating somebody's work and we were a bit more respectful, I think we wouldn't be in the bickering position that we're in now. I agree. And I think it's a fundamental starting point. Without that, we can never really debate. We can never really discuss because we're, we're just looking for opportunities to say that the other person's opinion is wrong. Mm. Um, and and, and uh, any form of active listening or any, any attempt to, uh, you know, any training or any attempt to have, a, have a, a relationship with anybody is about understanding their perspective uh, as well as you can. Yeah, but we, uh, and I'm going to let you go in a minute because I'm starving uh, and I'm conscious that we've been speaking for a very long time. Um, we don't, we don't have that anywhere, Simon, that, that uh, respect, you know, look at the media, look at politics, look at, we, we don't talk to anybody like that, you know. Uh, uh, James, I do. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I'll be honest, there is an aspect to you know be the change that you want to see. I think there is a there is a very good point there that you've made. Well, get but... any LinkedIn posts, 
thank you for your post. I found it really interesting. I think you, I, I always say thank you. Mm. And then I say, my understanding of what you said is this. And based on my understanding, uh, I make a comment mm. uh, over and over again. And I, I haven't always done that. That's only by learning, by, by people who, um, uh, well, philosophy has got me there. Mm. Um, to be better. I'm not perfect. Listen, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I am. But I'm trying every single time I do that to, well, I see what you, I think what you're saying is this. Thank you for taking the time to speak, by the way. I think what you're saying is this. If, I, if that's that, this is my response based on what I think you've said. Yeah. Now, that's, that gives us a chance, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That gives us a chance. But there's so many of them out there. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm having a little, just a little bit of a break from LinkedIn just at the moment because the amount of thought leaders and, exper and experts and, and when you question people, and I, I, I think if somebody spent some time to explain something, if you're going to respond, I think you should uh, show it the respect to respond um, appropriately. Um, and, and the amount of times I've written all the words you possibly can on a LinkedIn response and had no response back at all, mm. nothing whatsoever. Mm. Um, now, maybe I just talk uh, talk crap, and you know what? There's a, <laughs> a very you know distinct possibility of that being true. But even so, if somebody, if you're stood in a room and somebody speaks to you, you speak back, you acknowledge their existence, and I think we should at least start there. Yeah, not just about me on LinkedIn, but at least start there. In life yeah. in general, we need a That's bit more. That's just a that. great starting point, isn't it? Yeah. Acknowledging another person's humanity. Yeah. Start there. And, and you see that in face to face. You see it all the time. You know, when people are, you, you're not even finished talking and people are just sitting there shaking their head. And they're like, no, nah, no. Nah. And you're just like, can you, can you let me finish? Because I haven't finished my points. And I might say something in the next two minutes in which might completely uh, end up, you know, you agreeing with me, but yet you've already disagreed with me and I'm not finished. Like, and, and I think. There's a, there's a distinct lack of respect in every engagement that we have with anybody, with any people. Everyone is so damn angry, whether it's professional, whether it's academic, whether it's, you know, day to day, is that we've lost this empathy for people and we've lost this respect for people. And we, we cannot have dissenting opinions without being rude and aggressive everywhere. Uh, and we, we, it's, just ruin, it's ruining working environments, I think. And I... And I you know, cannot wait to see, you know, this, this, all this piece around psychological safety start to take more, uh, have more of an impact and take, take foot in a lot more businesses because I think we need it desperately. Yeah, I do. I, I, and um, I think it should be a fundamental starting point um, for health and safety professionals. Mm. Um, whether it's the apprentice saying, excuse me, I'm not so sure about this. Mm. Um, uh, you know, being open to the idea of, okay, yeah, I may have written a, you know, a, a very uh, protracted safe system of work about this, but do you know what? I might be wrong. Yeah. Exactly. I'll tell you what, thanks. Or thanks very much for, your, for what you've said there. Um, I don't think I explained myself in the right way. What you said is covered by this, but I'll tell you what, I'm so pleased that you asked because that is real. That's great. That's what we need here. Quick, keep it up. I need someone <laughs> to make sure. There's stories for that all over the place, you know, people that because of hierarchical systems, you know, 
and the, because of their years of service, etc., you know, either a beaten down small, lower ranks or whatever that they won't talk or, you know, the younger person has or the lower ranking person has made an assumption that they can't talk because of the hierarchical systems, which have yeah. led to catastrophe. You know, the stories are all over the place. You only got to do a bit of research to find out. We need a little bit more open and honesty, trust and respect. So these um, maybe uh, I, I know we, we haven't really talked about that. I'm going to go and have our dinner and all that lot. Um, but um, it, w one of the reasons why I, I've sort of lifted my head up out of the, the world that I was living in and, and is because I feel I've reached a position where um, I'm able to ask questions in a way that I wasn't before. Um, um, so what I mean by that is, is by um, studying philosophy and psychology, um, you know, at an academic level, uh, university level, has enabled me to question the way that I, the, just the general framework of way that, of way that I approach health and safety and the way that I do it. Um, it's, it's enabled me to consider um, uh, existing paradigms and look at them and go, oh, well, that just doesn't make sense yeah. using uh, philosophical reasoning and um, uh, even on the basic, uh, even on the most basic level, our understanding of what's called epistemology, uh, which is knowledge. Uh, I don't know where you've gone, by the way, James. It's gone all a bit zoomy. Hold on. Let's see if I can. There you are. Right. So I want you to go away and think about this and don't answer it straight away. So, knowledge, okay, to in order to know something, that it has to be, for it to be knowledge, true knowledge, it has to be a, tr a, a true justified belief. If it doesn't have all those three elements, it isn't knowledge. A justified true belief. What's true? Right, well, okay, right, we, we could argue that one. But let's understand about, understand just our basic approach to training. We get people in a room and what we tell them may be true and justified, but if they don't believe it, it doesn't become knowledge. Yeah, that's a good point. So if we're, if we're interested in, in passing on knowledge or facilitating the, uh, the gaining of knowledge, unless we understand what knowledge is, we're always going to miss the, we're going to, we, you know, we're, we're throwing the dart at the wrong board. You won't get there unless you start to think philosophically and understand epistemology. Unless you understand um, what justice means. So we can talk about a just culture, but what does justice mean? What does fair mean? What does moral mean? What does ethical mean? Unless we understand these things, then we are using words which have no depth. And they are just from the, the context of the individual at that time. And therefore we're basing whole approaches to health and safety, which is built on, on very unstable ground. And these are fundamental elements, critical thinking skills, problem solving, Socratic reasoning. Um, uh, if you haven't got those, the rest of it will be wrong. Hmm. So I don't know if that works for you. There is a, 
a whole number of things I could say to that, but I, I think that would end up leading us on to another five hours of, of talking, which I am not going to survive that. No, I'm no, we're not. We're not. And I just had a call from my mate. I'm going to help him do his garage. Uh, we're sorting out the gutters on his garage. So I've got to go. He, he just rang me and said, where are you? So well, there you go. We'll, we'll say well, you must be in his support bubble then. Uh, we won't. Uh... Uh, well, it's outside and he won't, he, he will be stood at the far part of his garage and I'm putting a, um, a new gutter on for him because he's not very well. Now by, by, the, by the COVID police. No, we, don't no. worry. We, I'm not going in for a brew or anything. I'm just putting a new gutter on his garage. That's all. Right, so, so I'm conscious that you didn't introduce yourself. So I'd like to finish off with an outroduction. If you could just kind of tell okay. us about, about what you do, your company and, and how people get hold of you um, and stuff like that. Okay, so yeah, so I'm Simon. Uh, I've got quite a practical background. I was in the army for a bit as a PE teacher, um, as a um, as doing PE and, and all that lot of fitness stuff in the army. And then I was in the fire brigade for... Um, for I think about 16 years, something like that. Um, I was a fireman, leading fireman, sub-officer and station officer. Um, I've always had a, a, um, an enormous interest um, in um, philosophy, stories, mythology. Uh, I've always been interested in, um, uh, in learning. I'm, uh, uh, I often find myself that I think, Oh no, I'm not going to be able to. I, you know, I, I want to do a PhD in this and that, and then that, and then that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's just definitely not, not enough time to learn all the things I'd like to learn. Um, um, I set up Ouch about 20 years ago now. It's called Ouch because I am bored to death with the John Smith Health and Safety Company. I'm bored to death with the approaches to health and safety um, that many, but not all, um uh, approaches that we have so that's um the reason why we set up out um to try and make health and safety accessible to try and talk about it in a way which is less um less dull and less engaging um we I've approached, uh, we've been going like say for about 20 years now I've done work with some quite big companies. I've, I've done some work for Google along the way. I've done some work for Man United along the way. Uh, I don't know, some really big companies. We went over to Doha and did some work on behavioral safety over there um, when they were building the Olympic stadiums. Um, so I, I, I've got a, a, lots of practical experience and, and sort of ouch in our subject matters that we teach. Um, but for example, take manual handling. Why don't we make manual handling behavior-based? We don't, we go, we'll train people in behavioral safety and then they'll use that for manual handling. Why? So when we teach manual handling, it's behavior-based manual handling. When we teach working at height, it's behavior-based working at height. Rather than it being a separate thing, um, it should underpin all the things that you do that involve behavior. So that's what we do. Um, I'm um, moving more and more now into um, into philosophical training, so critical thinking skills, um, um, ethics, morality, intellectual humility, um, and we are involving philosophical concepts in uh, everyday subjects such as working at height. So I, I, I know we, we need to go, but I just need to show you how it works in reality. Okay. So doing some working at height training with this group of people, 
And I said to them, they've been, they know that if they are working on the ladder and they fall, they'll hurt themselves. So they know that, but they still, they've got the right equipment, they've had the right training, but many of them still don't follow the training. There are different reasons why that, why that is. I understand that, different circumstances, uh, different elements of the behavioral system. But I asked them this question. I said, why do you think you have a right to choose to work in a way that's different than the company are paying you to do it? Where is your moral right not to follow the rules? Now, when you ask them that question, they go, oh. Um, and it, what it does is it questions a, a fundamental aspect of, of people's rights and responsibilities. We can tell you you're responsible for this. You, you, you have a right to do that. But unless you get deep inside and say, why do you think you have a right to choose not to work safely? Well, I would turn around to that if you said that to me and I would say, why does my employer think they have a right to tell me a specific way to work? Right, because of a contract. How would work be if you came to work and you and I said to you, James, can you paint that wall blue? And you said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I went away and you said, I don't want it to be blue. I want it to be green. And you painted it green. That's not how work works. What you do is you give up some of your rights, your rights, your, your autonomy when you work. You give up the right to decide whether you fix that machine or that machine when you go to work. You give up the right what you wear to work if you, if you work on a building site. I want the right to choose what I wear. Well, no, here you can't wear flip-flops. So, so what we do is, so that is called contractarianism. And that is, a, is a, an element of morality, which maybe we can talk about in a bit more depth is in some aspects of our lives, we give up our rights in return for benefits. And we, but the problem is, is, is in the workplace, we don't discuss it explicitly. We, it is an implicit um, uh, understanding of rights and responsibilities rather than an explicit one. And I would make it an explicit one where make all workers, if you want to work for us, you must either do what we're asking you to do or tell us why you're not. There is no, there's no middle ground. You must either do it or tell us why you can't or why you won't. Now that incorporates safety one, do it, follow the rules, do that, um, and safety two. And, and that's where Decker, fit, he doesn't go far enough with just culture. I think that we look at this concept and we can, we can uh, I, I have methods of doing this, of actually making it a tangible, real thing, um, behaviours and, and processes which underpin that. If you don't do that, then we're always, um, um, we're always missing that opportunity of using philosophy and philosophical ideas of rights, um, uh, um, we're losing the opportunity to use them. And I think they will add, they won't replace anything, but they'll add to all the amazing work that, we, that people have been doing for goodness knows how many years. And that's all they do is they put the cherry on the top, they provide a bit more structure, hopefully 
it will improve things going forward. But it's an element, because we don't understand it, we've ignored. We've ignored philosophy. And I don't know why. Wow. See ya! <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could have gone on, we could have just had another two-hour conversation on that, I think, as well. But we, we would end up being here all day. So... Simon, I will link Ouch Training and your LinkedIn in the description below for everyone to get on to and, and hopefully get some business out of this. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, brilliant, James. Um, good luck with everything. And um, I'm sure we can do some other things around philosophy. We can have workshops, we can do everything. I, I, it's amazing working with you today. Thank you very much. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation if you did hit us up on linkedin at well james mcpherson come talk to me personally and it will be me typing the message because you know we're nowhere near that big that i can employ someone to do it yet um you can come find rebound and safety on linkedin as well and facebook rebound and safety it will come up just search rebound and safety however twitter is a little bit special it's rebranded safety as if we, you know past tense we've kind of already done it i hope you enjoyed that conversation i really like the way simon talks about things i, I just really like simon if i'm honest he's got a really kind of chillaxed way of talking about things but then it's so kind of deep and philosophical at the same time um which is cool like he's the kind of guy you just want to sit down the pub with over a few pints of guinness don't get check out next week's episode where i'll be reflecting on my conversation with simon so you can get some behind the scenes and some some extra thoughts maybe to to get those cogs moving even more anyway thanks for listening catch you later safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank <laughs> you.